Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hello, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I manage the Texas Medical Association's Education Center. Did you know you can claim CME credit for many of TMA's podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. Click on your podcast and follow the directions to claim CME. The content of CME to go podcast does not relate to any product of a commercial interest. Therefore, there are no relevant financial relationships to disclose. And note that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hello, and welcome to the Texas Medical Association's Practice Well podcast. Today's episode is on physician behavioral health during COVID-19. I'm Anna Stelter with TMA Public Health, and my guest is Dr. Thomas Kim. Dr. Kim is a psychiatrist and internal medicine physician from Austin, Texas, and serves as principal for AGMP Telehealth. He has clinical expertise caring for a wide range of vulnerable populations, including disaster victims. Dr. Kim serves on TMA's Council on Legislation, Committee on Health Information Technology, and Subcommittee on Behavioral Health, and was also appointed to the governor's newly formed Broadband Development Council. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Kim, what about large-scale disasters like COVID-19 puts physicians on the front lines at risk of wearing down mentally? Our current reality is so much more than an infectious disease pandemic. In preparing for this podcast, I recalled my telehealth work following Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. I see a number of parallels with respect to the challenges we face, such as demand far outpacing supply and escalating workforce shortages. But I think we're experiencing something fundamentally different than a mass casualty disaster. The difference is the global insecurity we are all experiencing across every life domain, including personal, professional, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. Security is both distinct from and necessary for the development of resilience. Insecurity adversely threatens our innate resilience, and we now know the negative consequences that can follow profound adverse experiences. I'm at a loss for recalling a previous time when so many have experienced sustained insecurity and the end is not yet in sight. What I do know is that I'm grateful to belong to a profession dedicated to the well-being of others. To borrow from Viktor Frankl, Purposeful work is one of three paths to a meaningful life. Purpose can bolster our resilience to overcome seemingly impossible challenges. Thinking about my colleagues in ERs and ICUs everywhere, I'm humbled but unsurprised. Having survived the rigors of medical training in an increasingly complex world, my colleagues are resilient by design. But I think this very resilience can also put them at risk. Being responsible for medical decision-making requires a whole host of character traits, including resiliency, but also persistence and accountability, among others. Weighing life and death decisions is difficult enough, but physicians are currently contending with extraordinary circumstances. A friend of mine who's a critical care pulmonologist recently reached out to me to process how to manage 50 patients in need of a ventilator when his unit only had 16 vents. There is no study or guideline that he can turn to, and he was at a loss. 
As we explored the situation, there was an aha moment when we recognized a fallacy in logic called an appeal to false authority. This error in logic is the incorrect assumption that mastery in one domain equates to mastery in others. Because the buck typically stops with physicians, physicians might assume, or are assumed to, be the final arbiter in all situations, especially a healthcare crisis. The result is that physicians are being looked to to make impossible decisions in equally impossible situations. This will undoubtedly have lasting effects long after the stay-at-home orders have lifted. Not all physicians are necessarily on the front lines of the emergency, but COVID-19 affects them too. What does this disaster change about their daily occupational stress? I agree that the warfront analogy falls short when you look at physicians practicing outside of hospital settings. What you see are equally formidable challenges with no clear targets, no safe quarter in the rear, and the hits feel like they're coming from every direction. I'm especially concerned for small practice physicians who are struggling to care for their patients in our new reality and don't have the financial security of larger health systems. I'm certain that small practice physicians are worried for their patients, but they now have the added concern for their staff, their families, and themselves. It's important to remember that these concerns are not strictly occupational. Their uncertainty and insecurity span every domain, raising complicated questions. How exactly are we supposed to balance caring for patients and ensuring our staff remain safe, all while keeping the lights on? How is someone with small children supposed to navigate doing a more hazardous job while attending to their child's well-being and education? And how do you decide between running your practice at a loss in order to sustain your staff versus furloughing them, knowing that staffing back up in the future might be far more costly? I imagine these are the questions that haunt many of us every day as we endure this pandemic. And to be clear, this is the reality for every small business owner and employee who make up a significant proportion of the currently sputtering economic engine here in Texas and around the world. With so many physicians being put through intense situations during COVID-19, the mental and physical effects will start to surface even in the most resilient people. Can you remind us what is going on physiologically that makes a stress reaction occur? Well, I like to remember that the stress response is what kept and keeps us alive. The stress response is what saved our forebears from tigers coming out of the jungle. The stress response is what helped me navigate running my first code in training. And the stress response helped me survive the first three months of my son's life when I thought he was trying to kill me by sleep deprivation. The stress response is also an elegant cascade of hormonal responses along our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The result is our primary stress hormone, cortisol which mediates a whole host of physiological fight-or-flight responses that influences most of our major organ system. Interestingly, after years of study and practice as a physician, it was only after volunteering as the performance coach for my son's state champion archery team that I developed a deeper understanding of the stress response. What I discovered is that there are two potential responses following a stressor. There's the challenge state and the threat state. The challenge state is notable for associations with positive emotions, attentional focus, and a sense of control. Threat states demonstrate the opposite. So for any given stressor, there appears to be a cognitive or psychological gate of sorts that results in either enhanced or hindered performance under stress. How we manage that gate influences how we experience a stress response. So we know the intense stress physicians are going through could persist for many months. Why is it such a concern when stress is both severe and chronic? I think that understanding the stress response as a positive or negative state 
suggests that the stress severity is not necessarily predictive of future difficulties. It would help to explain why everyone doesn't or won't develop PTSD following the most stressful situations, such as the Holocaust, major disasters, and this pandemic. So stressful situations are not in of themselves a bad thing, but sustained chronic stress is very much so. There are a number of stress and trauma-based diagnoses such as PTSD or generalized anxiety. What these diagnoses share is a hijacking of the stress response, resulting in sustained and elevated levels of cortisol. And as with most things, too much of it is a bad thing. A helpful analogy I often share with patients is to consider chronic stress as the equivalent of driving on the highway in first gear. If you don't know how to drive a manual transmission, this may not resonate. But if you drive like this, you will burn out your engine. Chronic stress negatively impacts every aspect of our lives, both mentally and physically. We would need a series of podcasts to adequately explore this topic. But I think the chief takeaway is recognizing your own stress response and developing ways to effectively and positively cope with it. So every person experiences stress responses. These are normal, and as you said, they're even adaptive. But when does a typical stress reaction start to escalate into something more concerning? The short answer is that the moment to be concerned about your stress response is unique and multifactorial for each person. The slightly longer answer is to refute the premise of trying to identify your stress danger zone. Instead, I recommend focusing on self-care to increase your coping skill mastery and create a deeper reserve of resilience to defend against whatever stress you might encounter. The framing of my recommendation is very much akin to primary care. Managing a healthy weight and diet is far superior to treating type 2 diabetes. But to those who are concerned that they may have already crossed into the danger zone, you will likely struggle with notable difficulties in multiple life domains. The challenge with our current circumstances is that most of us are experiencing notable difficulties in multiple life domains. My best guidance would be that if you feel concerned about your stress, talk to someone. I'm a big believer in therapy but have always felt that therapy should be renamed skill building. Cultivating increased skill mastery is critical to general health and well-being because, as stated earlier, it's not the insult that predicts the development of subsequent difficulties. How we respond to an insult determines whether we rise to the challenge or succumb to it. You mentioned self-care. How do you recommend physicians prepare to be less vulnerable to extreme stress in the coming weeks and months? Well, being prepared isn't just for Boy Scouts and can be enormously powerful to help you ready yourself against most anything. This is because preparedness starts with a readiness mindset to respond rather than react. I can confirm that most everyone around our state is doing their best to be ready. Readiness leads to checklists, protocols, and aligned expectations, which can mitigate the difficulties that lie ahead, particularly when things go wrong, and they will. Cultivating specific and practiced routines can help us maintain a positive challenge state with enhanced performance in the face of extreme stress and uncertainty. Beyond that, I cannot overemphasize the importance of the three most powerful medicines I know, sleep, water, and food. Optimizing these three areas offers a powerful defense against the negative consequences of stress. Finally, the magnitude of the pandemic suggests that few, if any of us, will emerge on the other side unscathed. The challenges we face may seem overwhelming and even paralyzing. You may be feeling lost in the enormity of everything that's going on. And while I can neither predict or promise a specific future, I am certain that there is only one way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. 
This strategy has gotten us to the moon, among other remarkable achievements, and it will help us persevere and overcome the current pandemic. What can be done to manage a severe stress response? Well, I have recently had to reevaluate my approach to addressing stress with my patients. Historically, there are a number of great therapeutic approaches, but few are as universally helpful as making lemonade. When life inevitably hands you a lemon, focusing on the positive aspects of your life works to minimize negative distortions in thinking and identify positive response strategies. And prior to the pandemic, finding anything to be grateful for was something most everyone could do and something that you could build on. Right now, the strategy is particularly difficult, given that most everywhere we look, there's a lemon. That said, this is not to say that there isn't still lemonade to be made. Staying at home has reminded us the importance of familial and social ties, prompting many to host game nights with puzzles or board games, even at a distance. Without the crush of modern living pulling us in every direction, there's evidence of rekindled personal interests, such as playing an instrument, working out, or baking bread. On the more macro scale, I understand Mumbai and Bangkok have never looked so beautiful, suggesting that our collective pause from life is having a positive environmental impact. Your question, however, emphasizes severe stress management. I wish to be clear that if anyone feels that they are unable to cope with their severe stress, please seek out assistance to the best of your ability. But because of the uncertainty around resource availability, we may be left with the old school approach of simply caring for each other. When I hear about people helping with food or medicine delivery so that a high-risk neighbor doesn't needlessly have to venture out, I see a lovely and powerful benefit in both directions. By caring for each other, we create a bit of security and hopefully remember that we get through these things together. You're something of a telemedicine expert. How can telemedicine play a role in promoting physician wellness during this time? This is unexpectedly one of the hardest questions to answer, despite my 16 years of experience in the field. It should surprise exactly no one that we have remarkable technologic tools at our disposal that can support our continued work in caring for patients during this pandemic. My first impression is feeling excited about this enormous groundswell of interest in telehealth, and it appears that it took a global pandemic to reevaluate some of the historic barriers preventing meaningful growth, such as geographic restrictions and the lack of reimbursement parity. These desperate times have given us the opportunity to realize that we've been holding on with both hands to a system of care that has limited bang for a lot of bucks. Staying at home has freed up a hand to now grab for something potentially better. I predict nearly all of my colleagues will discover that telehealth improves healthcare delivery for patients and providers alike. I've had the privilege of working with a number of groups currently embracing telehealth, and the result will be that our expectations around care delivery will be forever changed for the better. Alongside my enthusiastic excitement is a gnawing sense of dread. This concern stems from the potential pitfalls of making decisions in a crisis. The current hullabaloo around Zoom security issues is an excellent example of why we should be more thoughtful and strategic around cultivating this new skill of delivering telehealth care. Another concern is around failing to see the true value of telehealth as connecting you to your doctor rather than simply a doctor. But mistakes will inevitably be made, and my hope is that when the dust settles, we strive to learn and grow from any missteps rather than try to put the genie back in the bottle and return to healthcare as usual. I should highlight that the TMA has a wonderful resource page on their website that can be helpful in navigating the many strategic decisions to be made in order to provide telehealth services. 
If anyone should have a question not answered on the site, they are most welcome to contact me. How do you suggest physicians provide support to their colleagues during this time? Let's suppose a physician sees they or a colleague are in acute mental distress. What is an appropriate way, do you think, to bring that up? Your question presumes that a physician in a challenged state of mind sees a distressed colleague in a threat state of mind. This will, unfortunately, be an all-too-common situation in the weeks and months ahead. What I can say is that one of the curious benefits of living through a crisis is that typical social conventions are often suspended. Outside of a crisis, things go unsaid because the observer may be preoccupied with their own life. They may be concerned about offending or alienating the person in distress. They may also hesitate to turn over this rock for fear of what they might find. Right now, it is so important for us to remember the ties that bind us, and expressing concern for another is always the right call. I suggest simply asking, how are you, or are you okay? Barring from the literature around relationships, the two qualities that have been found to support long-lasting romantic relationships are kindness and generosity. I think there's some generalizable value here with all relationships, and recommend that we strive to be kinder and more generous with one another. Can you discuss the concept of mental health first aid? And why is this a beneficial skill set for physicians to have? Mental health first aid is a training program designed to help people who have recently experienced a major trauma or are in acute crisis. It begins with teaching you how to identify mental illness and then how to supportively engage a person in crisis until such time that they can access formal treatment or the crisis resolves. Even outside of a pandemic-level crisis, being familiar with mental health first aid is a broadly useful skill, much like CPR. This is because, in addition to helping to overcome an acute crisis, mental health first aid has been shown to reduce stigma around mental illness by dispelling misconceptions and negative attitudes. I would say that this is a beneficial skill for all physicians, especially if they do not typically treat mental illness. Before the pandemic, I frequently joke that all physicians treat mental illness, just not well. Moving forward, I predict the need for mental health support will be greater than ever before, and mental health first aid can be vital to supporting everyone who needs help. Physicians' families are also significantly affected by these incidents. Can you discuss some of the reasons for that, and why do organizations need to expand their notion of support to include the families of affected physicians? What makes our current situation difficult is the very nature of a pandemic. When compared to other large-scale disasters and losses of life, pandemics do not discriminate based on nationality or religion, like acts of war or terrorism. Pandemics aren't restricted by geography, like Hurricane Alley. And pandemics do not just impact specific demographics. This makes it nearly impossible for anyone to turn a blind eye. Because of the widespread impact across every domain, we can expect everyone to be affected, families included. It will take some time to appreciate the full impact of the COVID pandemic, as we are still in the early acute phase, but completely novel accommodations will have to be made in order to support one another. In terms of economic and governmental support, I freely confess my limited expertise, but early indicators seem to suggest that these forms of support are not likely to be easy, timely, or adequate. Speaking more broadly, I think we can embody ease, timeliness, and adequacy through simple acts of grace. As previously mentioned, the challenge of educating our children is a particularly poignant example for me. I have discovered that I am a terrible middle school teacher. 
Despite finishing the 26th grade, fancying myself to be a lifelong learner, and having specific knowledge about brain development, it's been tough for me to help my son continue his education in these uncertain times. That said, my wife, my colleagues, and my friends have been an enormous source of support for me. As a result, I have persisted, come up with new strategies, and we seem to be having fewer crosswords and tears this week. I imagine next week will be better, and the week after better still. A big part of the more effective strategy is continually reminding myself that we are in this together, and together we will be okay. We're not sure when, but at some point the immediate crisis will be over. What do you expect are going to be the long-term effects on physician mental health? Mental health issues around crises typically follow a two-wave progression. The first wave peaks during the acute setting when everything is going sideways. Fortunately, the protective nature of our stress response and a challenged state of mind has been shown to blunt this phase as folks go into crisis mode and does what needs to be done. But this is taxing work, and not everyone can be expected to manage this phase well. Attention to sleep, water, and food is critical to surviving this phase. Once the crisis subsides, the second phase of mental health concern typically has a longer time of onset with a higher peak of intensity. The timing and intensity are directly influenced by how well-equipped the environment is to address the aftermath. If the infrastructure and resources are reasonably intact post-crisis, we can be more optimistic about recovery. If the environment has been critically devastated, recovery becomes more difficult and prolonged. Current estimates place Texas as experiencing its pandemic surge in late April. I don't think we can currently speculate on how this pandemic will play out beyond this. If we remain in lockdown too long, the impact on essential and non-essential industries will leave us with limited capacity to recover quickly. If we end the restrictions too soon, we risk another round of infections with potentially more devastating impact in terms of loss of life and prolonged time course. And with no great potential futures moving forward, the challenge before us is formidable. What I do know is that we are all working towards better understanding the problem, which is the first step to finding a solution. On the other side of this pandemic, it is likely that some of us will continue to feel distressed long after others appear to have gotten back to normal. In this situation, I would say that normal is largely an illusion. Following a crisis of significant magnitude, a return to normalcy, whatever that word might mean, is not a return to our best days of the past, but is rather moving forward with intention and positivity. We will be bruised and scarred as a result of this pandemic. Those that get up off the mat will be the ones who are okay. The key takeaway here is that you do not have to do this alone. Asking for help is one of the hardest things a person can do. If anyone finds themselves struggling to find their path forward, we can and should rely on one another. It'd be great to hear some of your thoughts on stigma. What can be done to reassure physicians that it is normal to need help processing through this ordeal? A helpful way to frame our new reality is to acknowledge that everyone is in the same boat. Regardless of history, status, or circumstance, we see rising levels of mood and anxiety distress in most everyone right now. This situational reaction to the pandemic reveals that we all experience symptoms associated with mental illness. I predict that this will have a positive effect on dispelling stigma long-term. Being distressed in the face of a crisis is not a character failing. Asking for help is an act of bravery. If we can remember these lessons once we get back to living our lives, we have an opportunity to address some long-standing societal challenges around stigma, mental illness, health disparities, and more. 
once we see ourselves in each other, we will be better and stronger for it. Among the physician community, it's really not hard to detect a prevailing sense of pessimism right now that, you know, things are really hard for a lot of physicians at the moment. What things do you suppose physicians can be encouraged or motivated by during COVID-19? I hope my responses today have demonstrated a thoughtful balance of candid pragmatism and hopeful optimism. Lemonade isn't made by ignoring the lemons. Lemonade comes from intention, effort, attitude, and other qualities that collectively boils down to choice. Choice always reminds me of the Cherokee legend of the two wolves. Put simply, a young boy learns that we all walk with two wolves, a good wolf and a bad wolf, who are constantly battling each other. When he asks his grandfather which wolf wins, the grandfather replies, whichever wolf you choose to feed. I choose to feed my good wolf as much as possible. How can physician leaders help their colleagues and their communities stay resilient? To be honest, I'm not sure my colleagues could do more. Both here in Texas and everywhere I look, I see my colleagues admirably fulfilling their professional oaths in some of the direst circumstances. If I had one piece of encouraging advice, it would be to go easy on themselves. I would remind them that they are not alone. And in the words of my son's former PE teacher and archery coach, we are all we got and we are all we need. I am confident that together we will make it through this pandemic. Dr. Thomas Kim, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of TMA's Practice Well podcast. For those with additional interest in this topic, please visit TMA's CME library at texmed.inreachce.com to access continuing education courses on managing physician stress, self-care, burnout, and resilience that are free to all TMA members. Please also be sure to check out TMA's other Practice Well podcast episodes, including our recent episode on patient behavioral health. Until next time, stay safe and stay well.